0: listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.church. Amen. Uh, well, if you're new with us, uh, this is our fourth year of the Psalms series. We started this in 2016, and uh, so we're back in it. Every July we do this thing, and I love it when we do it. Uh, we, my estimation, we, we do about five of these a year, There's 150 psalms. So if I calculate right, we're going to be wrapped up in about 2050. So, you know, hold tight. Uh, We're going to get there together. Uh, And uh, today we're in Psalm 113. So if you have a Bible here or if you have a Bible at home, get it out, uh, turn it on, get it on your lap. You might have a notebook with you to to take any notes uh, as well. And as we jump in, I just want to give some rules of engagement for dealing with the psalms. The psalms are a different kind of animal uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, They are, they're different kind of literature. You know, it's not like um, so many other parts and moments of scripture. Uh, you know, it's it's not um, historical narrative like when you're reading uh, Joshua or uh, Second Kings. It feels different than that. It's not just a story unfolding, and and it's not uh, like what Paul does in the epistles, where it's very argumentative and, and presenting a, a postulate and 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 giving reasonings uh, for it. You're not following a line of logic so much. This is these are psalms, so these are songs, which means this is art, right? And and because it's art, the structure of how it's made, of how it's written, uh, matters and speaks uh, in some ways just as much as what's actually written, the content of it. So uh, think about it like this. Think about um, music or, or, or a song. The way a song is constructed Uh, tells us something about uh, that writer's intent. If you flip on the radio and uh, you hear a song come on and every 45 seconds, there's this repeating chorus that says, baby, 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 right? And it happens every 45 seconds. You can know, based on the construction of that song, that this artist wants you to know that this song is about his lady or a small child. One of the two, I don't know which baby you'd have to hear in context. But uh, that's what is happening in, in the Psalms. Now, what does this mean for, for us? Well, it means that the construction of this psalm can actually give us clues as to what to pay attention to when, when we get into this. For example, uh, the way this psalm starts at the top and the way it finishes at the bottom are bookended by the exact same phrase. Do you, you see that? Uh, the phrase is a very familiar one to us. It's hallelujah, or in the English, it is praise the Lord. That's how it starts, and that's how it closes. It's bookended by that. Look at verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. And then the closing line, praise the Lord. So it's, it's bundled by this idea of praising the Lord. Now, why do that? Well, it's, again, it's framing for us what this whole thing is about. It's, it's a clue to the agenda of this psalm. It's a way of saying you're not allowed to miss the priority of this thing. You can't get into it and you can't get out of it without dealing with this thing. So before we do anything else in the text, we need to see this. The agenda of this psalm is this, that you and I would praise the Lord. It's, we just need to own that. That's what it's about. And, and uh, just so you know, it's not a suggestion. This is, this is an imperative command. Hallelujah is you do something. This is, and and it's, not, it's not a suggestion. It's not like if you get around to it on a Tuesday, you might think about praising the Lord. The command is you praise the Lord. Now, I'm belaboring this uh, because as obvious as it sounds, I mean, we're studying worship songs. Of course, the punchline is praise God. Uh, I'm belaboring this, though, because as obvious as that is, it's so easy to miss this in practice. Is this not? Like, um, theologically conservative, evangelical Christians like the folks here, uh, the the people of our church, we're really good at thinking. We can think some really deep and wonderful thoughts about God. And let me just commend that that's right. Lean into that. We need to think deeply about the things of God. But thinking is not an end in itself. Thinking should lead us to praising according to scripture. It should lead us to praising. When I was dating Kelly back in the day, when we sat across from each other at the table, I I didn't give her a book report of her attributes. Like the, the hues of both of your retinas, I've noticed, are actually a composite of three colors notified here on the color wheel that I brought with me. And by the way, did you know color wheel in the Hebrew is meshimech, right? If that's not what I did, that would be weird and she wouldn't be married to me right now. What did I do? I said, I love your eyes. I love your eyes, and I've been thinking about them all week, and here I am, I get to stare into them. I'm so happy to be with you. That's how you get a wife, by the way. Boys, pay attention. But that's the appropriate thing that thinking should do. It should move you to praising. So thinking is great, but it shouldn't terminate there. And so let me just say again, the point of this psalm, and for that matter, the point of the Bible And for that matter, the point of your whole life is the praising of the Lord God that the words of your mouth would brag on him and the affections of your heart would bend toward him and the deeds of your life would point to him. We're about the praising of God. It's what everything is about. Colossians 1 tells us that all things were made through him and for him. You're made for him. 1 Corinthians 10 31 says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Uh, In the 1600s, a group of Protestants got together and they wrote the the Westminster Shorter Catechism and they put it like this. You've probably heard this before. What is the chief end of man the chief end of man is to enjoy God and glorify him forever when when you're when you're thinking about why am I here what's the point of it all the point is to praise God I remember I was at lunch 14 years old in high school sitting across from Molly Rothwell and she asks me a question out of the blue she's like hey uh, Jimmy what do you think the meaning of life is She's like super deep for a 14-year-old. But I didn't know at the time she was a Christian, she was baiting me. I didn't see it coming. And so I gave her some like Jean-Paul Sartre, really artsy answer. Like, oh, I think it's different for all of us. You've got to chase your dreams. And she was like, no, no, stop. You're, you're an idiot. No, the point of existence is for you to glorify God. It's like a light bulb. So, so next time you're, you're alone and looking in the mirror and you're just like, "What, what is the point of all this? What is the point of my life? What's the point of anything? You can be confident to say back to yourself, the point of my life is to praise God. Isn't that great to just settle that? That's why I'm here, to praise God. So we're not here today to just nerd out on some factoids about an ancient text. That's that we're going to do some of that, right? We're going to think deeply. I hope we think deeply in these next minutes. But if, if what we're doing right now just leaves you going, huh, fun facts, right? You've missed it. You've missed the point. We're here to praise God. And, and not just like until the stream ends on your laptop right? Uh, or, Or like I finish preaching here, but for like forever and ever and ever. Look at verse two and three. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That's quite a long time. From the rising of the sun till it's setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Eternal praise coming to God forever. That's the agenda of your life. Do you see that? That is what this psalm is about. It's about praising God. Now, if the outside of the psalm frames for us the what, what we're to do, the inside of the psalm is going to give us why we're to do it. That's how it's constructed. Now, now, how, how do I know that? Because of the design of this psalm. So Psalm 113 breaks up evenly into these two stanzas, a top and a bottom, and each one is framed by that, that phrase uh, uh, praise the Lord. Hallelujah on the top. Hallelujah on the bottom. And these two stanzas, as they come together, the place where they meet is in verse 5. And it's, it's, it's actually a, cr- a creative technique to bring the attention of the reader or the singer to one of the most important parts of a given text. It's, imagine, it's like neon arrows pointing to the center of this psalm. And right in the center of this psalm, right in verse 5, gives us our why. Now, what does it say? It says this. For who is like The Lord. Who is like the Lord? Which is a rhetorical way of saying there's no one like God. In other words, the psalmist is is grounding our praise of God in the uniqueness of God. He's saying there's no one like him in the universe. And the whole rest of the psalm is proving that, it's demonstrating that. That's what Psalm 13 is doing. Now, before we unpack that, I'm curious, how would you answer that question? Like, if if you had to prove or give it a defense for for what makes God utterly unique, what would be the thing that you grab and you you would give to somebody? Think about it. If there's 10,000 things to say, Right? And all of them would, would likely be true because he's, he's God. He's unique in every way. You could talk about God as creator, right? You, do you know anyone who created something out of nothing? You don't know anybody like that. So it makes him utterly unique. Or you could talk about him as Trinity. I don't know many people that are one being in three persons. I, I can't think of many, right? He's, he's, he's unique in that respect. Or you could talk about his holiness or his righteousness. He's utterly unlike anybody, but the Bible seems to lean into one answer that in many ways rises to the top of the heap. And that is that in God, majesty and meekness mingle. I'm going to say that again because if if you're writing something down, if you want to hold on to like one thing today, uh, hold on to this, that in God, majesty and meekness mingle. They mingle. Jonathan Edwards calls this the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Isn't that great? It's, it's when t- two things that typically don't hang out together hang out together, and when they when they do, when they come together, it's praiseworthy, right? Uh, like we praise folks uh, who excel in paradoxical fields. It's Shack. Yes. Shaquille O'Neal. So th- just go with me here. Shaq, one of the greatest basketball players in NBA history, and the breathtaking protagonist of 1996's smash box office hit Kazam in the same person that doesn't go together normally. What can't you do, Shaq? That's a bad example because... Uh, because that movie was terrible, but the idea is there, right? Diversity of of paradoxical qualities coming together in one person makes somebody praiseworthy. That's what they do. Paradoxes get praised. And in God, great heights pair with great lows. Majesty and meekness mingle. Now let's demonstrate that. Let's look at the text together. Look uh, with me at verse 4 says this, the Lord is high above the heavens. Now, if you want to talk about someone's importance, you might use a metaphor uh, of their physical position. You might do that. We do this all the time in our language. She's at the top of her field. Right? All right? He towers above his peers. This is how we talk. But you're, you're saying location language, but you're talking about importance, right? It's a way to emphasize their importance. And that's what this means. Not that God's like way up there, but that he's exalted over the nations. Do you see that? And so, so it's not so much that he's north of us, it's that he's Lord of us. That's what he's saying. And this is important uh, to understand. This is something to treasure about God. God is not a regional God. God is not the God of the Jews or the God of the Western world. Every nation that has ever been or ever will be, has been under the hegemony and leadership of God Himself. Think about it. every ruler that's ever, every ruler that's alive today with all of their autonomy and greatness, they are subordinates to the leadership of God. Just think about them Trump, Trudeau. Xi Jinping, and and, and, uh, Prince Harry, I mean, there's all these people, right? They are all subordinates to God. They're little parochial lackeys for God. In fact, the the, the Bible will even say they don't even have the decisive autonomy to rule according to scripture. Uh, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart, is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. You think you're, you're driving this bus? God says, you're not driving the bus. I'm driving the bus, no matter who you are. He's in charge. First Timothy 6.15 says it like this. God is the blessed and only potentate. That's the, that's the King James Version. I love that word, potentate. You know what it means? It means he's potent. He's, he's the only powerful one. He's the only sovereign He's the ruler of all nations, but not just all nations. He ups the ante, right? He moves from nations to the universe. He says he rules the universe, verse 4, and his glory is above the heavens. So it's not just national authority. It's not just international authority. It's cosmological authority that God has. Let me, let me, uh, let me give you some perspective. Um, Psalm 147.4 says this. He, God, determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Now, let's just think stars for a little bit. I did some research and and scientists generally agree that on average, there are roughly, give or take, about 100 billion stars per galaxy. Now, based on what we know of like how many galaxies there are that we've been able to pick up through Hubble and other telescopes, That means that the number of stars in the known universe, the known universe, is one billion trillion stars. That sounds like a number my kids make up when they're just trying to be ridiculous, right? One billion trillion stars. And the text says God has a name for each of them. Isn't that amazing? He names all of them. So you get the picture, God is big and lofty and exalted. He's over nation states and he's over the world and he's over the cosmos and he's more important than you. That's the point. He's a big deal. You're not. He's he's great and he's mighty and he's exalted. That's what he is. That's how you should feel when you listen. You should feel as you're hearing these words, like I'm a little baby, ant, zygote. Like that's what you should feel like. I should feel like just nothing in light of his bigness and glory and might. But the song isn't even over. It just keeps going. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? Now why talk about seating? Why is he seated? Well, he's seated because he's on a throne because that's what kings do. Kings sit on their throne and they exact their rule over their people. So he is seated as he rules the universe. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, in the year the king uses. Died. Remember this? I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And on either side of them stood the seraphim, and each of them having six wings, and with two they covered their face, and two they covered their feet, and with two they flew, and each one cried out to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Our God rules everything, y'all. He's the biggest deal in the cosmos. That is who our God is. Verse 6, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. I love this. He doesn't just look down. This dude looks far down. This This dude is so big that for him to see the biggest things that you got going on in your big old life, He's got to come all the way down here, and he's got to squint his eyes, and he's got to see what's going on. Do you remember? uh, You remember the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. So, a group—it's Earth—and they're together, and they're going, "Hey, you know what we ought to do? We ought to build a tower, and we ought to build it—I don't know—to heaven." And they, they decide, we're going to build a tower that would communicate something about our greatness, that we could make a name for ourselves. And so they build this epic tower, and it goes all the way up to heaven, and it's so amazing. And do you remember what it says God does in light of that? Do you remember what verse 5 says? Here's what it says. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. What do you got going on down there, guys? Look at you. Look at you. Hey, this is God. This is what God's doing in Genesis 11-5. Come here, buddy. Puts him in his pocket. He's just a little. There's nothing. He's massive. He has to come down to see the biggest thing humanity has ever done. Do you feel it? That's what you should feel when you read this. He is epic and lofty and large. The God of the Bible is the most important, awesome, terrible, powerful, awful, majestic being in the universe, and you could stop there, and that'd be enough to convince everybody that he's utterly unique, and most people stop there. Most religions will stop here, They'll terminate on this, and, 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 and uh, you know, God is big, and he, and he is sovereign, and he rules over the nations. He sits above the cosmos, and he's way out there, and I can't get to him. Now, there, there is a word, a theological word to capture this, the, the, the bigness Uh, and up thereness of God. It's called his transcendence. You've heard that word, his transcendence, that he's up there and he's untouchable in his might and splendor and bigness. And you could stop there in your thinking about God and you would be in agreement with most of the world's religions. But if you stop there, you will miss what is so shocking and scandalous and jarring and beautiful And majestic about our God, the God of the Bible. That's because our God doesn't just look down on us, He comes down to us. Do you see that? That is what the Bible claims about our God. He doesn't just look down, He comes down. Um, Let's look at verse 7. You'll see this here. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Now, I don't know how that hits you when you read this, but if you were an ancient Near Eastern person reading this, you wouldn't even have categories for what that means. The the gods of that culture and time all demanded service, and contribution from their subjects. You existed in that era to appease the gods. That's why you were there. So that was the relational dynamic between the gods and people. And yet here is a God who claims to be the greatest of all gods, to be the God, and instead of demanding service, what is he doing? He's rendering service. He's not just transcendent. He's imminent, close, near. What's the point? The gods of this world are looking for people to serve them. The God of the Bible is looking for people to serve. Second Chronicles 16.9 says it really succinctly. The eyes of the Lord... Move to and fro throughout the earth. Why? So he could find subjects who would, who would take care of him and meet all his needs? No, they moves to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. That's what God is up to in the scripture. He is looking to help the helpless. Now that would be beautiful if anyone acted that way. That's an amazing attribute for a person to have. But the wonder of this, you see this, right? The wonder of this is that it's set against the backdrop of God's majesty. So his humility and meekness shines all the brighter. Like, uh, let me give you an example. Say uh, you're driving in a car and uh, it's raining outside and you get a flat tire, you pull over, and uh, you start changing the tire outside. It's raining. It's muddy. You're getting covered. And you turn around and you look, and uh, a Toyota Corolla is, is rolling up on you. And some guy gets out of the car, and he comes over to you, and, and uh, you know, he gets down on his knees and starts working with the lug nuts, too, and he gets that tire changed for you, and, and you're off and running. Now, what do you feel in that moment? Well, no doubt you'd feel incredibly grateful. I mean, that guy totally helped me out. That's amazing. But now, change the scenario. Same thing. It's raining. You get a flat. You're outside fixing it. And you look back, and this time, it's, it's not a Toyota Corolla. It is a caravan of black armored escalades coming this way. And they park. And the guy who gets out of the back of that entourage is not some dude. It's Prince Charles, Prince of Wales, the, the Duke of Cornwall himself. And he gets out, and he says, hey, I, I'm in the States on my way to a gala, but I saw you, and I just feel so much compassion, and I, I, I want to help you out. And he takes off his coat, and he calls off his guards, and he gets on his knees, and he says, hey, don't, don't, don't be here waiting the escalate. It's warm. There's some tea in there. Go, go rest. And he gets those lug nuts and starts working with them, takes the tire off, changes it out. Now, my question is, does that feel any different than the first guy? Of course it does. Why? The first man, what he did was beautiful. What the second man did was scandalous. Why? Because in this world, power doesn't kneel, but our God kneels for a living. That's what's so shocking about the story of God in the Bible. And here's the truth. You could search the whole world, for a God like this, but you will not find it. I actually think this is one of the the best proofs for Christianity is is this. You you could go to any one of the major religions, take Islam for for example, and, and you will find there a transcendent God. You'll find a God who's big and epic and sovereign and doing things, but he will not be imminent. He will not mix with the rabble of this earth and get his knees dirty in the mud. He won't be doing that thing. Or you could leave that, and you could go to the more liberal wing of things, right? And and over there, you could find a God. If you find a God, you'll find a God on this side of the fence uh, that is incredibly imminent, close, near, sweet as pie, God. The God you want to bring home to mama, God, right? You, You could find that God in this camp. He will be imminent, but he will not be transcendent. See that? So so in the religious camp, you have majesty but not meekness. In the secular camp, you have meekness but not majesty. But only in the Bible, only in the Christian God do both of these attributes come together at the same time. And you get a God who is both supremely majestic and supremely meek at the same time. This is is what makes it so precious that that we have this God and not another. Nowhere, nowhere in all of the Bible does this shine brighter than in the gospel of Jesus. This feature, this attribute, this coming together of paradox excellencies shines brightest in the gospel. I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about Jesus. Think about all the things you know about him. And just consider that from the beginning, the very beginning of his life, To the end of his life and beyond, Jesus is constantly the exhibitor of meekness, of majesty and meekness. He's constantly, think about uh, Christmas. What do we celebrate at Christmas? What are we celebrating? We're celebrating what? The incarnation. What is the incarnation? It's the transcendent made imminent, right? Think about his name, Matthew one twenty three the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name, what? What? Emmanuel, which means God with us. Think about his life. Think about the the makeup of his life. What did Jesus even claim about himself? Think about Mark chapter 10, verse 45. What does he say about himself? He said, for the son of man did not come To be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This God doesn't just tell us, hey, go atone for your sin and then come back and we'll work something out. He says, no, I want to atone for your sin. I will do the work. I will serve. I don't need your service. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I'll serve and give my life as a ransom for, for many. Or even just go, go to the very end of the story. Go to the end of your Bible. Let's talk Revelation. What does it call Jesus in Revelation? Make this connection with me. What does it refer to him as? The lion and the lamb. Majesty and meekness. Transcendence and imminence. Loftiness and lowliness. This is who our God is from cover to cover, and he shouts it in the person and the work of Jesus. Now, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Here's what this means. If you want to know the best way to obey Psalm 113, Remember, what's the what of the passage? It's praise the Lord. If you want to know the best way to praise God, the best way to make God look great, here's what it means. Let him help you. Let him help you. In God's economy, letting him step in and serve and help you actually brings him supreme glory. You know, it's, it's interesting. In verses seven and eight of this psalm, they are almost a direct quotation out of an earlier part in your Bible. Did you know this? Out of 1 Samuel chapter two, it's a prayer that a woman prays named Hannah. You guys remember Hannah? Hannah, uh, she's the second wife of a guy named Elkanah and she was totally barren right unable to have children and she was mocked daily by the first wife and so here you just get the picture you've got this whim, woman who's who's living in shame uh, she's living in a culture that says if you can't conceive uh, that you must be cursed right and and she's entirely powerless to do anything about her situation she can't fix it whatsoever and so what does she do she cries out to God to grant her a child and what does God do God grants her that child, and do you know how it describes God granting her the child in the text? It says this, the Lord visited her. He came down. He visited her. Our God doesn't just look down. He comes down and he helps the helpless. That is precious. Now, some of you probably know what it feels like to be like Hannah. Hannah right maybe for you it's it's something physical uh, maybe uh, it's an ailment that you haven't been able to, to overcome. Maybe it's a, a disease or, or a weakness. Maybe it's something like financial crisis that you can't seem to surmount or, or get around. Or maybe it's actually like what she was dealing with. Maybe it's barrenness. And like you, I, I know there's many families in this church who who wanted children and they haven't been able to have them. We we know what this feels like. And me and Kelly, we, we had three miscarriages on our way to having our firstborn. So we so I, I know this this feeling of. of man, there's nothing it feels like we can do. Like, how how do we fix this? Can I just invite you? And I know many of us in this church are already leaning into this, but I just, I need to say, because I think it's one of the points of the text, the best way to praise God is not to try solving all your problems yourself, but just coming to Him needy. Just crying out to Him. I know this isn't brain surgery. It's like Christianity 101, but if it is, why are we so bad at it? cry out to God. God, you do something. And and look, I'm not saying that he promises in scripture that every one of those prayer requests gets answered in the way that we want. I mean, scripture's really clear. He can, he might, he might not. But what I do know is his posture toward us is one of service and compassion. And I definitely want to bet on that over not that. So ask complete with him. Maybe you're like Hannah in a different way. Maybe for you it's not like a physical thing. Maybe for you it's a spiritual thing. Maybe it's a spiritual barrenness that for your whole life you just feel like you're working and working to please God and you just haven't been able to do it, to achieve it, to get there. And when you think about God, you think there is the, uh, that transcendent God is up there and he's big and he's lofty and, and he hates my sin. I can't, sh- I can't shake this stuff off of me. Can I just invite you... What, What this passage is inviting you to do is to do the very same thing, realizing that that you're going to fail and that you can't be good enough. And the good news of the gospel is that the majestic God has come down to be good enough for you. That's what he's come to do, to come and be good enough for you. So the best praise If this is you, that you could bring to God is not to bring all your good works to him, but to let him bring all his good works to you. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is the way our God gets glory in his economy. We cry out to him, and though he is high and lifted up, he comes down to grant us pardon. It makes him look great. Now, I just want to end by letting us marinate on one other passage of Scripture that I think does a great job in a single verse to capture this truth for us. In fact, if, if you are, don't know this verse, unfamiliar with it, or if you know it but you haven't memorized it, I, this would be a great thing to aim for this week, just memorizing this as, as a family or a home group. This is, this is the transcendent made imminent for you. Listen to this. It's out of Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, and we'll end here. I'm just going to read it over us. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also, and also with him who is of a contrite, and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Let's pray to God. God, who's like you? Who of the the gods has ever been both transcendent and imminent. You, you prove your own existence and uniqueness by bringing together impossible things. And we glorify you for that, and we praise you for that. Praise the Lord, O oh, His servants. Praise the name of the Lord. We praise you, Lord because in you is this collection of diverse excellencies that make us stare awestruck. And God, we we pray that you would give us hearts that aren't dull or seared, but but hearts that are tender to this truth and, and wouldn't just glance over it on our way to other distractions, but we would ruminate on it and marinate on it and savor it and treasure you for it and boast in you for it and praise you for it. You're worthy, God. You're worthy precisely because of this. You are to be glorified precisely because you laid down your glory for the sake of rebels and came and got mud on you and blood on you you rescued. And so we give you thanks, we give you glory in in our feeble and meek attempts to do so, and we pray that you would make us more like you, and that you would help us to enjoy who you are in fresh ways. And God, may we be people for whom it said, they praised the Lord, they boasted in the Lord, they made much of the Lord. We love you, in Jesus' name, amen.